Genesis 4, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the question is, then why hasn't the kingdom of God yet come? Why isn't God reigning on earth right now? Why not just do that now? Why don't we have a utopic paradise in perfect fellowship with God and with one another? Well, as Israel camped on the eastern banks of the Jordan River, preparing to receive the land that God had promised to them, God educated them about their purpose, about their origins. Genesis 1 through 3, God told them of the original kingdom, the original creation and what used to be. But the original creation was marred by sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's decree to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so God cursed them. He had warned that the consequence of sin is death. They spiritually died, and then they were on their way to physical death as well. And you might ask, well, what does that have to do with me? Why hasn't the kingdom of God yet come? Why isn't God reigning on earth at this moment? Why don't we have a utopic paradise in which we're in perfect fellowship with God and with one another? I mean, what does Adam's sin have to do with me? I wasn't in the garden. I wasn't there when Adam rebelled. Actually, according to Scripture, you were. To a certain degree, we were there. Hebrews chapter 7 speaks of Levi being credited with doing something that Abraham, his great-grandfather, did, quote, for he was still in the loins of Abraham. Though he was not yet born, Levi did what Abraham did. Augustine, John Calvin, and Martin Luther all took the view that mankind is sinful and has a corrupt nature because we were all present in seed form, as it were, when Adam sinned. But more directly, when Adam sinned, he did so as the official head of the human race. Theologians call this federal headship. He represented all of us when he chose to disobey God. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Verse 18 of the same chapter, One trespass led to condemnation for all men. And this is what theologians call original sin. But someone might want to still argue, surely that can't mean that every single human being born is automatically a sinner, automatically a rebel against God. Well, Psalm 51 verse 5 says that we were brought forth in iniquity. We were born in sin. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says we were, quote, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's what theologians call imputed sin. Now, that's an important theological term to learn, impute. It means to reckon or to charge to somebody's account. And sin has been charged to your account. You were born a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But those are still high and lofty theological arguments. Israel, camped on the plains of Moab before the conquest, they have a mission. Exodus 19 tells them their mission. They are to be a kingdom of priests to the world, to point to the one true living God, to point to God the Savior from sin. And so they needed to understand the scope of sin. And far from just presenting a theological argument like I've just done, God simply tells them the story of sin. Genesis 3 gave the origin of sin, and we saw that this resulted in the wrecking of perfect communion 
in a vertical relationship between God and man, and it wrecked the perfect communion in the first horizontal relationship, the husband and wife relationship. Now the woman would want to usurp and dominate her husband, and the man would tend toward domination instead of leadership, toward abuse instead of cherishing. But is that as far as sin went? Once Adam and Eve died, wouldn't everything be okay again? Couldn't we just start over? Well, Genesis 4, through the first part of chapter 6, is here for us to show the extent of the spread of sin as it grows and grows and grows, and it stands as absolute proof of imputed sin to every single human being. So the question that these three chapters answer is, how far will sin go? To what extent will it spread? Or to put it this way, how badly will the kingdom fail? We can divide the story of the failed kingdom, the spread of sin, into three basic parts. Start with the first part. Part one, one man rejects God. One man rejects God. Now, having been evicted from the Garden of Eden, the place where they had once communed with God unimpeded by sin, in a a broken and a marred sort of way, Adam and Eve did begin fulfilling, to a certain degree, the command to be fruitful and to multiply. God cursed the serpent in Genesis 3, and part of that curse promised that the seed, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of Satan. There would be a Savior who would end the curse. Chapter 4, verse 1 Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So she gave birth to a a boy that she named Cain in Hebrew. It sounds like the Hebrew word for gotten or I've received. There's strong evidence that her proclamation legitimately can and probably should be translated, I have gotten a man who is the Lord. I have gotten a man who is the Lord. It may be that Eve believed that she was giving birth to the promised Savior of Genesis 3.15. Now, we don't know that for certain, but we'll shortly see an example of another man who believed that his son was the promised Savior. And that's much clearer. So the possibility that Cain would end the curse is very plausible. That is very reasonable. But of course, Cain wouldn't end the curse of sin. Eve gave birth to another son, Abel. The boys grew up. Abel became a shepherd, keeping sheep. Cain became a farmer, a worker of the ground. Their parents had told them the story of creation, the story of the garden, the story of sin. And this family of four was now separated from God and they could commune with God now only through distant worship through sacrifice. So Cain and Abel would bring their offerings to the Lord. Cain brought a portion of what he had grown from the ground. And Abel, chapter 4, verse 4, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. That's a phrase that means that he brought the best of the firstborn of his flocks. He gave the best that he had. Verse 3 says that they brought the sacrifice to the Lord. Where did they bring it? I told you this morning, I would tell you tonight where they brought it. There's really only one logical place that they would bring their sacrifice. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 24, the last verse of chapter 3. He, that is God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's only one logical place, and that is at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Cherubim here is plural, means there's a multitude of angels guarding the entrance to fellowship with God. Later, on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, or the lid, would have golden cherubim placed on it, guarding, as it were, the inner sanctuary in which dwelt the presence of God. And this harkens back all the way to the separation of man from God. By the way, as we learned this morning, not only are there the two cherubim on the mercy seat of the Ark, carved on the walls of the inner sanctuary are cherubim and embroidered into the outer walls of the entire tabernacle are the cherubim. Why? Because the throne of God is always surrounded by cherubim everywhere. So the place at the entrance to the garden where the, the, the cherubim are and the flaming sword, that had now become a sacred space. They got as close to God as they could, a space now dedicated solely to God's worship. And God rendered the judgment concerning their sacrifices. Verse 4, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. To have regard for something in Hebrew means to respect it, to believe it's real, to believe it's genuine. And so Cain and Abel now here function as representations, as prototypes of the two types of people that are in the entire world as revealed by their heart concerning the worship of God. Abel is the example of the believer in Yahweh. Cain is the example of the unbeliever. He is a fraud who attempts to show religious actions. In fact, right at the very end of the Bible in Jude verse 11 Jude calls unbelievers who reject God in their sin those who walk, quote, in the way of Cain. He's immortalized forever as the prototypical unbeliever. Now, why did God reject Cain's offering and receive Abel's? The standard interpretation is that Abel brought his sacrifice with a right heart and Cain did not. And there certainly is truth to that, although that can be mixed in with a works-based salvation, which we would reject. Now, the text doesn't necessarily teach that Cain's sacrifice was inherently wrong, but the pattern for atonement has already been set. What must we have for atonement? We must have blood because God had killed animals to cover Adam and Eve. And with the whole of Scripture, we know that the wages of sin is death, and death means blood, not a fruit basket. But let's say that this right attitude is the key. What attitude are we talking about here? Well, if Cain is the prototypical unbeliever and Abel is the prototypical believer, the attitude must certainly be only one thing, and that is the acknowledgement of a need for forgiveness, an acknowledgement of my own sin. Abel gave blood sacrifices, in many ways acting as the priest for the family. Cain did not give blood sacrifices. So Cain is fully responsible for his own actions and yet there's even a a bigger concept in play here. As the firstborn, Cain would expect to be the blessed one in the family, but God chose the younger. And this follows the pattern which we see all through Scripture of, of God choosing the least likely. And instead of humbling himself before God, Cain became angry and his face fell. It's the idea of I can no longer make eye contact with God because I'm angry at him. 
And so God gives Cain a divine warning and a divine opportunity to repent. Chapter 4, verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He says, if you do well, meaning if you acknowledge your need for humility and repentance, if you acknowledge your sin, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Sin here is personified as an animal crouching at the door, ready to pounce on Cain. But it's likely that this is more than just a convenient and a, and a powerful word picture. The Hebrew word for crouching is related to a word in its sister language, Akkadian, used to refer to a demon. In fact, the first edition of the Jewish publication Society's translation of the Torah, the Pentateuch, translates this phrase, sin is the demon at the door. And I think that's an accurate translation. And this makes a much more direct connection to Genesis 3.15, Satan and his demons now coming against the seed of woman. God is warning Cain to not succumb to rebellion. But unbelievers by nature don't want to avoid sin. The New Testament says they love the fleeting pleasures of sin. Hebrews 11.25. Romans 3.14 and 15 says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. But Cain, after having God speak directly to him, warn him, and give grace to him, the gospel was essentially presented to Cain by God himself. But Cain carries out his plan. His bitterness and his anger toward his brother are now worked out in action. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What does it mean that Cain spoke to his brother Abel? He probably said, come out to the field with me. And in fact, the wording in Hebrew suggests very strongly this was premeditated. He had a plan. Just like the Lord did after Adam sinned, he came to Cain with a question in verse 9. Where is Abel, your brother? And first, Cain lies, I do not know. Then he denies having any family responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, he is. In fact, he is his brother's keeper. The family is the, is the building block for the perpetuation of humanity in obedience to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, the, the command to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. The family is the unit that does this. And so God renders his judgment. God is all-knowing, he's all-seeing, and he is called witnesses, as it were, against Cain. And the star witness is the ground itself. The other star witness is the blood of Abel in the ground. Verse 10, he calls his witnesses, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And God's punishment to Cain will be that he will be a wanderer instead of one who settles, a wanderer who has even more difficulty getting his living from the cursed ground than his father Adam would have, would have had, and he's to be a fugitive. Verse 11, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. But like all self-righteous men, Cain protests his punishment. 
And he demands mercy, which, by the way, he wouldn't give to Abel. He demands mercy. In verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. It's not that Cain wanted a deep, intimate relationship with God. He just wanted the blessings of God. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. He's not repentant. He's not sorry. He's just sorry that punishment is happening. But you notice what he couldn't bring himself to do? He couldn't bring himself to repent. He didn't want forgiveness for the same reason that anyone who rejects God doesn't want forgiveness. He didn't think he needed it. But Cain's main complaint is that others on the earth will kill him. And that's actually a legitimate complaint. Now, why would this be a concern to him? Well, the other people on earth can, at this point, only consist of the expansion of Adam's family over the long, long lives they were all living, very possibly through the other children of Eve. God would give Eve a replacement son specifically as, her, as a gift for the loss of Abel. But this doesn't mean she didn't have other children over the years that society had now been operating. So why would others want to kill Cain for his murder of Abel? Because they were family and you didn't kill your brother. But God shows mercy to Cain. God doesn't want a world characterized by personal revenge. And so the Lord does show a degree of mercy to Cain. In fact, this is the first example in scripture of common grace, of God showing kindness to an unbeliever. In verse 15, he says that anyone killing Cain would receive sevenfold vengeance from God, and God put a mark on Cain to warn others not to harm him. Now, whole sermons have been preached about the mark of Cain. Let me tell you everything we know about the mark of Cain. Nothing. That's it. It's been the subject of a lot of debate. Ultimately, we don't know what it was, but it was something that everyone would recognize something to protect him from lawless vengeance. I saw a cartoon once of of Cain with a big X on his face and it said something like, I knew I was getting a mark, but this is ridiculous. But we don't know what the mark was. It just said, God alone can take vengeance on the sinner. You will not take vengeance. And so this is prior to the institution of official human government by God. And so God has condemned Cain to be a fugitive, a wanderer, But how does Cain treat God's kindness and mercy to spare his life? He immediately rebels. Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, what is Israel on the banks of the Jordan River being reminded of in this part of their history They saw the origins of many important concepts that the law of God now reflects. They saw that sacrifices were accepted by God only when offered from a heart of repentant faith. They saw that blood is necessary to atone for sin. They learned that part of covenant faithfulness was caring for one another as brothers under the Lord. They learned that punishment for the guilty is the bedrock of society in a sinful world. They learned that revenge is not permitted. Only God sanctioned justice. As a matter of fact, later God would provide cities of refuge for the guilty to avoid family vengeance. But humanity, if we stopped right here, we could say, well, humanity's basically in decent shape, right? 
After all, with Cain and Abel, only one of them rejected God while the other was a true worshiper. So if, if half of humanity rejects sin and the other half is honoring the, the Lord, or one half rejects sin rather and the other half dishonors the Lord, okay, we're, we're 50-50 now. That's not bad. I mean, if I genuinely knew that 50% of the people on earth were born again Christians, that's not bad. That's a, that's a vast improvement. In fact, an individual might even say, you know, you know, there's a good chance I'm in the 50% of humanity that God will show favor to. I'm a pretty good person, at least in my own opinion. Those are reasonable odds. I mean, if I went to Vegas and I had a 50% chance of winning a million dollars, I'll take those odds all day. Maybe I can live whatever kind of life I want and take my chances that on Judgment Day, I'll be in the Abel category and not in the Cain category. So, so far, the spread of sin has seen that one man rejects God. Not too bad. But how far will it spread? Well, part two of the story is that most men reject God. Most men reject God. Now the odds are going to diminish. And we're going to see a disparity, a separation of two types of people, the many who reject God and the few who seek God. With the incredibly long lives of nearly a thousand years, it's important to note that the genealogies here of Genesis 4 and 5 obviously don't represent every human being born to this point. They're generally sons that are most important in the scope of God's plan. But with relatively little death on earth still because of the long lifespan, humanity would be now multiplying at an astounding rate. Let's look first at the many who reject God. These are those from the line of Cain. We get Cain's family tree through the firstborn sons descended from him. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Now, of course, the age-old question posed by critics of the Bible is, who did Cain marry? Well, obviously, Cain either married a sister or perhaps a niece, There weren't any other choices, so that's not a hard question to answer. There weren't laws against marrying a close relative in place yet, and the genetic problems with having children with a close relative, that wasn't a problem yet either. So Cain is to be a wanderer on the earth. The earth was not his to do with as he pleased, but instead he had a son, Enoch, and he built a city in honor of his son to retain the memory of the family name. Now, did you catch the ironic nature of this? Cain wants his family to be remembered. For what? This is the family of a murderer, and yet Cain is acting like this is a great family name. Let's preserve my family name. And then Lamech, he becomes indicative of how sinful and perverse mankind is becoming. He calls together his two wives, the first recorded instance of polygamy, by the way, in Scripture, in opposition to God's plan. And already we see women being treated as a commodity for men rather than the God-ordained helper and friend and companion that they were supposed to be elevated to be. Now, later on, we'll see the patriarchs with multiple wives as well. And Scripture doesn't condone or condemn it, but Scripture is very transparent about all the problems that it causes. 
But the institution of marriage now has defaulted to selfishness, to power, to control. And Lamech lets them know what's what. This has often been called the song of the sword. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The value of human life is now dropping. One man can devalue another enough just to simply take his life if he feels like it. Lamech brags of his power in personal combat. It serves as a boast, but it serves more as a warning. Don't cross me. God had promised to avenge Cain's life sevenfold, seven times in chapter 4, verse 15. But in the Cain family, even seven generations now, they did remember his name. That's for certain. Cain has become a legend. And Lamech interprets this mercy by God, the sevenfold vengeance promised if anyone harmed Cain. He interprets this as a badge of honor. That if Cain was so bad that God would have to protect him by threatening to avenge his life seven times over, Lamech is much more scary. He's saying, my deeds of violence would require I be avenged 77 times over. In other words, you think Cain was scary? I'm 10, 11 times worse. This is not sin which is regretted. In fact, this is the first time in the Bible in which we see a man boasting about his sin as something to be honored and revered. We have to remember that mankind has been multiplying now for seven generations, for many hundreds of years, enough people now on the earth to warrant building cities. And I think we should point out that Lamech's boast is not just the boast of a really bad man, it's the boast of a really bad king. Now, in Cain's family, we see indications of the behavior of despot kings. We see the building of cities, multiple wives. And why would Lamech say that he's much, much more powerful and much, much more of a force to contend with? The description of personal combat here is almost certainly in the context of warfare. Vengeance from one people on another. It's no longer a brother against brother, but it's a clan against a clan, a tribe against a tribe. And Lamech is the description of a king, but a king seen very much in a negative light, ruling his domain with power and with fear from his own selfish and ungodly purposes. And now cities are filled with wicked people. They're beginning to spring up. Most men reject God. But I said that there's a disparity, a separation. Many men reject God. But a few men seek God. Society isn't completely forsaken yet. There's a future hope that still burns like a single candle in a storm in a sinful world. Sometime after Cain had killed Abel, God gave Adam and Eve the gift of another son to replace Abel. Chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now the next generation is highlighted, and a few from Adam's family will seek the Lord. Verse 26, key, key phrase in our Bible. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You have this little ray of hope. And now the Holy Spirit in this text is going to highlight the family of the chosen line of Seth, 
And we see the original godlike intent that mankind would be God's representative on earth, even to the point of being able to make other representatives. Chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. And Seth now becomes the substitute for Abel and the promise of a coming seed of the woman who will give relief from the curse is kept alive in Seth's son Enosh. And so even in the midst of the curse, we have this little ray of hope. There's this tremendous blessing to Adam. Even though mankind has fallen into sin, he's getting a little taste of what an earthly king in service to God could enjoy. He would see generation after generation born to his family through Seth, his other sons, his other daughters. And with the long lives, this meant he was literally able to have fellowship with family members born hundreds of years after him. I mean, we feel thrilled if we're able to see our own great-grandchildren, but by the time we're due, there's, we, we, we can't do anything with them. We can't go outside and play ball with them. We're too old. But Adam could have played in the fields with his great-great-great-grandchildren, still vital and strong, certainly telling them the stories of the garden and the angels that were guarding the garden and the fall into sin and the fact that God requires blood to atone for sin. And so God demonstrated, at least in temporal fallen form, mankind's purpose to represent God on the earth and to enjoy his blessings. And it's a glorious time. But all of a sudden, chapter 5, verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. The reality of sin hits like a nightmare from which you can't awaken The generations subsequent to Seth are listed the end of verse 8 and he died the end of verse 11 and he died the end of verse 14 and he died eight times in this passage and he died and he died and he died and he died. The effect of the fall of man won't stop. It won't relent. But unlike Cain's genealogy, in Seth's genealogy, we see rays of hope. We see the light of God's kingdom plan staying the course. And let me give you a couple of examples. First, we see Enoch. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Instead of and he died, the text says God took him. What a unique difference. And what does this mean? Well, when we compare this with other similar instances in Scripture, Elijah, the two witnesses of Revelation 11, Christ himself, the best conclusion we have is that God translated Enoch out of this life without him suffering death. And Enoch becomes a living example of of what it means to be rescued from the curse and, and given life. The idea here now of walking with God would become a a common biblical way to express serving and following God as one who's been forgiven and has escaped the penalty of sin. I mean, now we speak automatically about how's your walk with the Lord? 
we owe this example to Enoch. We have another ray of hope in the sinful world. Chapter 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, this is Noah's father, Lamech. This is not the same Lamech of chapter 4. But this Lamech believed that Noah could be the one to remove the curse. Noah sounds like the, the Hebrew word for rest, to bring us relief. And we learn several important facts about Lamech. First of all, Lamech was aware of the curse of Genesis 3. This means that his family had continued to teach their children of Yahweh and the the separation that mankind now had to endure because of sin. So he was aware of the curse. We also know that Lamech was aware of and waiting for an individual, one man, who could remove the curse of sin according to the promise given by God. This means that in the line of Seth, generation after generation after generation had been told of what the Israelites would later call Messiah, a, a coming anointed one. And the third thing we learn is that Lamech, for some reason, expected that Noah could be this individual who would give the earth relief from the curse of sin. And in a way, he would be in that in his day, the earth would be temporarily cleansed of corrupt humanity through the flood. So most reject God. There's a disparity, a separation, and this is clearly seen in two ways in this passage. I just want to revisit a couple of things to show this disparity, this separation. First of all, this disparity, the separation of those who reject God and those who yearn for the removal of the curse of God, it's seen in how people respond to a cursed world. How did they respond? How did some in Adam's family respond? Well, Eve thought that perhaps her firstborn son would be the savior to relieve the world of sin's destruction. Abel offered sacrifices for sin to the Lord at the entrance of the once glorious Garden of Eden. The descendants of Seth, beginning in chapter 4, verse 26, began to call upon the name of the Lord in worship. Lamech hopes and yearns that his son Noah would be the one to give the world rest from sin, would be the coming savior. How did Cain's family respond? Look back with me at chapter 4, verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the other name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Naamah is famous in some way that's not explained here, but apparently worthy of remembering for something that she accomplished. Now we have, through the family of Cain, organized agriculture, We've already seen city building, the invention of musical instruments, the invention of metallurgy to make tools and, of course, to make weapons. Don't you find it odd that Cain's family is the one that leads the way in developing civilization? In a way, they were demonstrating dominion as given by God, but they didn't do it in right submission to God. They did it in rebellion to God. Can I put it this way? They were using technology to cope with the curse. 
They saw the world as their ultimate reason for existence. Metal tools make working the cursed ground easier. Metal weapons mean I can dominate my fellow man with fear. Musical instruments for soothing their empty souls like Saul's soul had to be soothed by the music of David. Cities being built as monuments to themselves. Now, just to be clear, the righteous would also build cities would also contribute to culture, but with the understanding that would be later expressed in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. What a contrast. Those who were calling on the name of the Lord, awaiting the hope of a coming Savior, and those who were trying to make a technological life on earth devoid of God. They responded to the curse in two completely different ways. But there's a second way that we see this disparity between those who would follow God and those who would continue in rebellion. I think it's best illustrated by comparing two men we've already examined. Lamech, the seventh generation from Adam through Cain, he becomes the epitome of evil and wickedness in a fallen world as a wicked king. But Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam through Seth, He becomes the epitome of following after God and being spared the consequences of sin. What do we learn from Enoch? He's the first example of God physically taking someone while alive into heaven, taking them out of the world before judgment comes, and he becomes our example of the necessity of faith. Hebrews 11.5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. His translation, dare I say the word, his rapture was indisputable evidence that he belonged to God. As a matter of fact, Jude quotes, at the end of the Bible, Jude quotes from a book. It's called the first book of Enoch. And it's from chapter one, verse nine. Now let me tell you about the first book of Enoch. This was a collection of traditions and writings written between the 4th century B.C. and the time of Christ, and they're mainly written in the name of Enoch. It's about the length of Isaiah. That's just the first book, and it claims to be a series of revelations which were transmitted to his son, Methuselah, for the benefit of the righteous who would live in the end times. It claims that Enoch journeyed to heaven and received revelation about what would happen in the end. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. This is exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. There's no way to know whether or not those are accurate promises promises of Enoch. And there isn't a lost part of the Bible that we don't have. Don't worry about that. But there is one part of it that we know exactly what Enoch said, and that it is true, and that it is scriptural because it's now included in the canon of scripture. Jude 14 and 15, quoting from the book of Enoch, it was also said about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, and these are the words of Enoch. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
Enoch is prophesying that God would return to execute judgment on the unrighteous. He predicts the coming of God, of Christ, with his holy army, and the subsequent judgment of all who survive that invasion. See also Matthew 24 and 25, exactly what Jesus said he would do. And so now, our, our wiggle room before God is getting smaller. First, one man rejects God. Okay, we're 50-50, we're good. But then most men reject God. But the third part of the failure of the kingdom of the progression of sin, all men reject God. Everyone. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now this passage has been debated for centuries, particularly the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Some feel this is speaking of the godly line of Seth, but verse 3 gives a negative response from God over those unions, so that can't be it. The medieval Catholic Church believed that the sons of God were the descendants of Cain and the daughters of men were the descendants of Seth, but there's no evidence at all in Scripture for this, particularly in elevating Cain's descendants to call them the sons of God. Still others think that this was based on an ancient Canaanite myth that was hijacked by Genesis to explain the wickedness on the earth, but I would seriously doubt that God needs to borrow somebody else's story to make the pieces fit together. The early church fathers generally interpreted the sons of God as fallen angels, as demons. Now, the main idea here is that humanity has transgressed divinely established boundaries to attempt to become gods. Mankind now has become like Satan who wanted to be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 14, they wanted to be God. <clears throat> so what is this speaking of? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, the best evidence is that sons of God speaking of demons. And really that's the only thing we can bring it down to. <clears throat> excuse me, the sons of God I want to give you a few lines of evidence here. It's a phrase used elsewhere to speak of angels created by God, both faithful and the unfaithful. Job 1 verse 6 says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. We also know from the New Testament that demons can and they do possess and control human beings to the extent of giving them great physical power and strength. Now, think about this. In the ancient world in which all combat is hand-to-hand -hand combat, who gets to be in charge? The biggest guys, the most powerful ones. They become the despots, the dictators, the overlords of the world. 
We know from Daniel chapter 10 that the great leaders of the world had demonic princes empowering them, ruling behind them, giving them the impetus and the power they needed to rule and to conquer. In the extreme ancient world, kings and rulers were often identified as divine or half-divine, sometimes even called demigods. And this could be based in the superhuman feats performed by means of demonic power. In fact, many ancient cultures believed that these kings or demigods were the product of a union between gods and human women. And so humans were trying to become gods rather than serving God. And they were helped along by demonic power. This is the earliest known view going all the way back to the 4th century BC. In fact, the New Testament seems to indicate this view very strongly. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 speaks of Christ gloating in victory over, quote, the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When? It says in the days of Noah. 2 Peter 2, verse 4 speaks of God casting demons into what the Greek called tartarus, a pit, a jail, or an abyss. Even in their fallen state, demons were given certain parameters, certain guidelines by God, but they attempted to go outside those boundaries. Of course they would. They're rebels. Jude chapter 6, or Jude verse 6 rather, says, quote, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so demonic powers stepped out of bounds. They're attempting to create godlike superhumans. The Nephilim, often called giants, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Where have we gotten all of our myths about godlike men, about giants, about trolls, about monsters? Very possibly from the reality of the post flood world carried through in a cultural memory, now completely polluted by human and demonic sin. God regretted he had made man. Verse 6, this is his holy response to sin. This doesn't speak of God thinking he made a mistake. It speaks of his grief and his sorrow over what the world had become, what his intended kingdom has sunk to now. Wickedness is now so great that every intention of the thoughts of men was only evil continually. And so God starts the clock. The countdown to the flood 120 years in verse 3. This can't be speaking of the lifespans of humanity because lifespans would continue to be much longer than 120 years for many generations after the flood. So God starts the clock in 120 years. He will drown humanity. He will imprison the demons who stepped out of bounds. Now the case for the sin of humanity is now airtight. It's absolutely airtight. It's not just that one man rejected God. It's not just that most men rejected God. All men have rejected God. So God decides to start over and he demonstrates his sovereign electing grace to one man. Somebody who doesn't believe in the doctrine of election and feels badly somehow that God has only elected a few million or a few billion people. How about electing one and his family? Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is not a case of Noah being the only good person on earth. Romans 3 says that there is no one that does good. Thank you. Noah also deserved divine judgment. He's no different. 
He's no different than these people. He's just the product of humanity only. He's not one of these mixed race people with demonic and human blood, so to speak. But he found favor. This is a Hebrew word that we would translate grace. He was chosen. He would escape God's wrath, not by his works, but by grace. Well, I want to have you ponder three thoughts in response to what we've learned, kind of returning to the beginning. The first thought, Adam's sin was imputed. It was credited to humanity. Romans 5.12 is clear about this. But God made a promise of a coming Savior. He would come through Seth. He would come through Enoch. He would come through Noah. He would come through Shem. And he would come as the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush Satan's head. So that's the imputation of sin. But there's another imputation. That is the imputation, the crediting of your sin to Christ. The transfer of credit from you to him. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is crediting Christ with having committed the sins you committed. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But there's a third imputation. The imputation, the crediting of Christ's righteousness to believers. He not only pays for your sin, which I guess puts you in some sort of neutral place, he makes you righteous as if it were him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the imputation of sins to Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the crediting of Christ's righteousness to you. Why would God do this? So we can fulfill God's kingdom plan and fulfill the original plan of God to fill the earth with worshipers. That's why. Second thought I want to leave you with. Adam was created in the image of God in order to, this is a key phrase, accurately represent God on earth and enjoy his blessing. That's why Adam was created in his image. In our salvation in Christ, we are those whom God has chosen just as he chose Noah, just as he chose his family. Romans 8, 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're conformed to the image of Christ. Why? In order to accurately represent him on earth and receive his blessing, just like Adam. It's the same thing. In fact, continual disobedience means you're not representing Christ as you ought to. 1 Peter 2.12 tells us, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I want to leave you with a third thought, one more. There is contained in the imprisonment of the demons at the flood when God relegated to them relegated them to the abyss for their rebellion there is contained in that a warning to humanity Those demons who were once the object of the judgment of God will one day be the instrument of the judgment of God After the taking away of the church in resurrection and rapture just like Enoch 
The world will turn once again from God wholesale and the judgments of God will begin quite literally raining down from heaven. And one of those judgments is recorded in Revelation 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. Those demons are coming back. They're coming back. So how much better to be found in Christ? How much better to be found in Christ? No one escapes sin. One man? No. Most men? No. All men? No. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in Christ, we are restored to fellowship and we get to be Enoch. Our Father, we thank you for this text, which is so sad in so many ways to see how sin spread like a a horrible, dark plague to the earth. But Lord, we are thankful and grateful that in these same early chapters, we have the answer. And that is the one who would crush the head of Satan. And we know that that was accomplished at the cross. We know that the seed of woman, Jesus Christ, crushed the head of the evil one such that sin now has no power, it has no hold, and we will be Enoch. We will go to heaven. And whether we experience the death of this body first and then go to heaven or whether we are here at the time of the rapture when many millions of Enoch's will go to heaven we rejoice that death no longer has any hold over us and we rejoice with the apostle Paul who said oh death where is thy sting it's gone it is gone Lord looking back at the origin of sin we see its massive impact in our world even today. We see the world just quite literally racing toward hell. But we are thankful to you that you will save us from that. We are thankful to you that you will take back what was once yours, that you will defeat the prince of the power of the air, that you will defeat the evil one. You have, def- you have inflicted on him a mortal wound at the cross and you will finally cast him into the lake of fire. And there will be a day on the new heaven, in the new heavens, on the new earth, in and around New Jerusalem, when we rejoice and we are thankful for there will no longer be any curse. What a great day that will be, all because of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and thank you. Amen.